Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. When Edith Wharton first found herself in the presence of the great Henry James, who was to become one of her closest friends, she was a young married woman of 25 and as yet unpublished. She was a guest at a dinner party in Paris in 1887 to which both had been invited. Little else is actually known about that particular evening, although it seems that Wharton felt too shy to speak to the literary master and so their first meaningful connection would not come until years later. What we do know something about, however, is the dress that Wharton wore for this anticipated auspicious meeting. It was a new gown made specifically for her by the Parisian House of Doucet on the Rue de la Paix, one of the many great fashion houses concentrated on the city's right bank. Wharton describes the gown as a tea rose pink with iridescent beads and notes with pride that it was made by Doucet. American women of a certain level of society in the Gilded Age could tell you all about the dresses and gowns they wore, how they were made, which house created them, and less often, they admitted just how much they had actually paid for them. The intricate world of the Parisian couture houses that created these costumes for the real Gilded Age, not a fictional filmed version, was far more tightly woven and interdependent than one might think at first glance. This was a world that combined the vision of both designers as well as the moneyed patrons and included an influential commercial network far beyond just the design house whose extravagant creations went on full display at the opera and at the grand balls. This show delves far below the surface to understand this world, and with the extraordinary research and insight of my guests today, we are able to understand just how it all worked. Just what was it like to have clothes custom designed by a great Parisian designer? What did it really cost? And perhaps most fascinating of all, just what made each gown an exquisite representation of each unique and very, very individual patron. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where we take a journey into corners light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. In the ultra-glamorous world of mid-19th century Paris's Second Empire, an invitation to a royal reception was a coveted and cherished nugget of gold. A story goes that one aristocratic woman invited to such an event was dissatisfied with the gown her dressmaker had produced. Fearing disapproval and disdain when seen by the fashion icon and style maker the Empress Eugenie, said woman rushed to the studio and home of new fledgling designer the English Charles Worth at 3.30 in the morning, begging him to create something new that would stand up in style to the Empress's envied wardrobe for the ball that very night. Worth assessed the challenge at hand and promptly went to work, as the story goes, and created a gown of lilac silk covered with lilac tulle and adorned by exquisitely embroidered knots of lilies of the valley. The dress was, in fact, ready that day, in time for the ball that evening. 
As members of her personal circle began to wear his designs, Charlesworth's work did in fact catch the eye of the Empress Eugenie. Not to be outdone, of course, she proceeded to pronounce him as her preferred designer. The launch of a great fashion career just doesn't get much better than that. The House of Worth is the name most synonymous with the exquisite couture of both American and European women during the last quarter of the 19th century, but the world is so much larger than that. My guest today, author and scholar Dr. Elizabeth Block, discusses just why the name of Worth is the one most often mentioned, how fashion was created, produced, sold, and shipped, and just what, below the surface, this world of great fashion was really all about. Elizabeth L. Block is a senior editor in the Publications and Editorial Department at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Dr. Block earned her Ph.D. in art history at the Graduate Center of City University of New York with a focus on 19th century U.S. painting. She also holds an M.A. in American Studies from Columbia University and a B.A. in English and Art History from George Washington University. Her articles appear in American Art, 19th Century Art Worldwide, West 86th, Town and Country, and Slate. Her book, Dressing Up, The Women Who Influenced French Fashion, was published by MIT Press and forms the basis for our discussion today. Liz, I am so honored to have you here on The Gilded Gentleman today. Gosh, we have been talking about this very special show really since your book came out, and I'm so happy that you're here, and I welcome you to The Gilded Gentleman today. So, so happy to be here, Carl. It is my honor. So let's just dive in. So let's just start at the beginning. What actually inspired you to create this extraordinary book in the first place? Well, does anyone know Madam X, the painting by John Singer Sargent in the Metropolitan Museum? I'm sure you do. That started it all, really. Um, this really wonderful, famous, scandalous painting by John Singer Sargent of Madame Goutreau. It's called Madam X, and it hangs on the wall in the American wing in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And in the painting, Madame Goutreau wears this very slender black dress, and she had this strap that was painted falling off her shoulder, which caused a huge scandal at uh, the 1884 Paris Salon, and Sargent needed to repaint it. Um, but this slender dress really spoke to me. And so a few years ago, I was writing an article about women's fashion and hairstyles in the late 19th century, and I started with Madame Goutreau's Madame X. And I sent it to a friend and he wrote back to me. This was a friend from the Graduate Center where he went to school. And he wrote back and he said, Liz, I think we need to know more about who made the dress. And that started a years long research project into the Maison Félix, who we think may have designed that black dress. And the rest really is history, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, when people read about the Gilded Age or they see the film and the TV adaptations, one of the first things that people always notice and they comment on is the fashion. And there's certainly been a lot of discussion about that. But we know that a lot of this came from France and from Paris. So, Liz, how did Paris and France really become the center of fashion and style in this last quarter of the 19th century. It's that je ne sais quoi, you know, what is it about French fashion and style? Uh, it really started in the late 17th century. And this was when Louis XIV, his finance minister, his name was Jean-Baptiste Colbert, he transformed this silk industry in Lyon, which is another large city in France. And he transformed Lyon into a city that made silk cloth rather than just importing silk cloth. And this started the textile industry in France. And so all these major couturiers in Paris began obtaining the highest quality silk right over in Lyon. And they had access to what they called the aristocratic fiber. And so the House of Worth, which we'll be talking about later, was one of the 
largest clients of the Lyon silk industry. And that's how you get these magnificent fabrics that are in the fashion that comes out later in the 19th century. So it's all about French taste and French style. And it really started with raw materials. Absolutely. I think that'll surprise a lot of people, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. I think so. So your book and and really your incredible research do something that no one else has really done so far. And that's really to connect designers like Charles Worth, which we're going to be talking about along with some others, directly with the patrons. And and you show really how this was an incredibly dynamic relationship, really a two-way street, as, as you've said. And we're going to look at some examples of that in the show. But can you give sort of an overview of really your main thesis here? Because I think that's really going to surprise some people. What I try to do in dressing up is restore the sense of equilibrium between the creators of couture and the patrons of couture, as you were saying. Um, So specifically, I'm looking at the women who were buying the fashion and sort of decentering the male genius from um, the design world, if you will. And many of the names of these American women are familiar to us today, especially um, on the East Coast and the Midwest and the West Coast. So the Astors, the Vanderbilts, the Morgans, Skirmerhorns uh, in the Midwest, uh, the Goulds, the Glessners, the McKays, uh, the Stanfords. So, yes, these were wealthy women who were spending family money. But they were doing it with intention and, in many cases, a surprising amount of practicality and frugality. And so you mentioned textiles and fabrics earlier when when we were just talking. And I noticed how, along with this, what I call the high textile IQ that the women had, there was a rootedness in familiar local practices. And it sort of produced this entrenched frugality that they did not relinquish so quickly. So women were very vocal about what they wanted to buy. And so I love this example of Frances Folsom of Buffalo, New York, who married Grover Cleveland. Um, He was the sitting president and they got married in 1886. She was 21 years old. He was well into his 40s. And she was very involved in designing her own garments that she was wearing as the first lady of the United States. And in the Smithsonian, um, in the National Museum of American History, there's an ensemble that was worn by Frances Cleveland. And it's a, it's a floral skirt, and it comes with two different bodices. And through my research, I found that one of the bodices, it's this peach velvet bodice, was probably made about 1895 by the House of Doucet in Paris, whom we'll, we'll talk about later. The second bodice is made of green velvet, and it was created later at home by a Baltimore dressmaker named Lottie M. Barton. So here you have this combination of work by a French couturier, Doucet, supplemented by a bodice made by an American dressmaker. And this was all put into motion by the client, Francis Cleveland. So I think that's a different model than some folks may think it is. In other words, these women just didn't go to Paris, go to Worth and have Worth or whoever it would happen to be say, here's the dress for you. They would say, no, no, no. I want this. I want that. There was very much a collaborative effect here. Am I correct about that? It was very much collaborative. It was a dynamic relationship. And as you say, uh, these women were very vocal. And in fact, some American women would go to these designers and they would bargain down the prices. We have letters saying, you know, don't pay Felix $200 for that, you know, top. I'm not paying that. Get him down to 150 Oh, we are so going to talk about how much these things cost. We'll get to that. Now, the other thing that is just completely fascinating to me about your book is that you show the full web, and I think that's really an accurate description, the full web of the fashion industry in this in this Gilded Age Belle Epoque period. It was not just the designers, but you had coiffeurs, you had milliners, you had perfumers, and even, and this is some of the most interesting stuff, the shippers and the tariff and tax agents, all of these people really are the ones that made up the industry, and they were all de- dependent on each other, interdependent, I should probably say. Can you give listeners an overview of that and how that worked? That's right. One of the main themes in the book is how vast the fashion industry was in Paris. And as you say, it wasn't just the couturiers, the designers. It was the hairdressers, the seamstresses, the makers of the lingerie, the perfumers, 
the accessory makers, you know, let's not forget about those parasols and gloves that people needed. The milliners who are making the hats, the trunk suppliers, the shippers for these transnational customers, all these specialties relied on one another to make this fashion industry a success. Now, of course, when you have reliance in this web of makers and providers, you're also going to have frictions and rivalries. Uh, and so, for example, the hairdressers often got into disagreements with the milliners if the milliners were making hats that covered the coiffures <laughs> that the hairdressers had spent so many hours making. Um, and equally, the um, couturiers might have a little tiff with the hat makers as well because they wanted things that matched um, fabric wise. And then there was this as you say, this web, this dynamic relationship between the perfumers who wanted to work with the designers and the hairdressers because people put scent in their hair and in their dresses. In several of your interviews, you use the example of when you're sitting in a library looking at these wonderful piles and piles of fashion magazines and you see all these fashion plates, but the list of credits was not just the designer, the, 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 the milliner was credited, the perfumer was, right? Is that an example of how all of these different entities contributed to what we think of as fashion? That's right. The credits are so much longer than you would ever expect in these fashion plates. And I was sitting in Watson Library in the Met, flipping through pages of these wonderful periodicals. And I thought to myself, what are all these names? And the corset makers were credited. Of course they were. But you couldn't even see the corsets underneath the dress and the fashion plate. And the same with the perfumers, which we'll talk about. But the corset is interesting because the dress wouldn't have fit properly or fallen correctly. The fabric wouldn't have fallen correctly if there was not the appropriate undergarment. So that was very important, right? Very important. Probably not very comfortable, but very important. Now, before we really get into Paris here, I want to go to New York uh, or back to New York. And and I think it's fair to say, too, we're, this is true of other cities, not just New York here. So I don't want to be completely New York centric here. But American women were really, in fact, exposed to French style and French quality really for some time, correct? Before the Gilded Age even kicked in in, let's say, the 1870s or so. How did that evolve? Right. How did French styles disseminate in the United States? Well, they did so in a few different ways. One that attracts me is the way that the styles disseminated through pattern books and periodicals like Demarest, Butterix, McCall's. These are still names that are familiar to us. Um, they would put out color lithographs of each season's styles. And one of the most influential of the women's magazines was Godey's Ladies Book, which came out of Philadelphia. And there are so many that are so many uh, volumes of Godies are still available. Um, people should take a look on eBay and maybe grab one for themselves. Uh, they had such a large readership, but they magazines like Godie's relayed the fashions from London and Paris, and they carried accounts of royal events and masked balls in Europe. So this was a way of getting the information out and influencing style. Now, another way was through the department stores. And as we know, in the United States, department stores were the hallmarks of the democratic marketplace. Those names, Lord & Taylor, B. Altman, A.T. Stewart, Bloomingdale's, they sold American goods, but they also sold a large array of French fabrics, trimmings, and finished high-end garments, and those were imported directly from Paris. Also, the department store buyers would go directly to Paris and look at the shows and come back with designs that they recommended to the store owners, and many of those buyers were women. And so was that like the most per perfect job of life to be a buyer? Can you imagine? Wouldn't <laughs> oh, that be <laughs> I mean, a professional woman in this period traveling alone or with one other woman and making decisions. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of power in that. And, and we don't think about that. I think that's sort of the perfect job of forever. Right. For sure. Now, probably. Charles Frederick Worth is the most famous name, at least to us today in the Gilded Age and, and Belle Epoque fashion. So. But can you, he wasn't French, we'll start with that, but can you talk about just who he was and why he became so famous and why is that the name that we know today? The name we know today, Charles Frederick Worth, he was an Englishman and set up shop uh, with a partner early on uh, around 1857 in Paris. 
this is really the household name. I think most listeners, if they were asked to name one designer from the late 19th century, might say House of Worth or Charles Frederick Worth. And there's just no denying that they were the leader, that this house was the leader. So after Charles died in 1895, his sons, Jean-Philippe and Gaston, took over the business and did a very fine job with it. Um, but Charles Frederick Worth really looms large in the you know imaginary, historical imaginary, if you will, because he was known for his big personality. And people often use the word, you know, dictator of fashion or he was dictatorial. But once they started digging into the fashion world from the perspective of the clients, I really got a sense of how Charles Frederick Worth met his match in terms of large personalities. Um, the firm is really, really well known. Uh, it's still a household name, as I mentioned. And that's because of how many of the garments remain for the House of Worth. Now, this is gets into the question of, you know, the archive with a capital A. But there were so many designers at the time. But because this was a family business and the records were saved so carefully, we have nearly a thorough set of business records in the Victorian Albert Museum in London. And we just don't have this for the other designers. Uh, there's also a relatively large number of garments that remain for the House of Worth. This is true for a lot of different reasons, but mostly because they specialized in ball gowns and those garments were most likely to be passed down within families, especially royal families or noble families. I had read or heard somewhere that one of the attributes of Worth was that he was really able to create a personality around his client in the designs of the dresses that he designed. Is that accurate? I think it's definitely accurate. He worked um, so closely with the patrons and he had so many royal clients and also actresses and these big U.S. women personalities. But I really do think it's true of so many other designers in the period. It's just that he's the one that's come down to us most clearly. Was there anything that we would consider a trademark element of a worth gown? You know, again, this question sort of gets to how dynamic one single fashion house could be. So was Charles Frederick Worth to designing all of the gowns? Not necessarily. So to my eye, they look different. Now, let's talk about some of these other designers and, and houses, because that really you do in your book. And I think that really fills out the, the picture. And one that you mentioned earlier at the top of the show that I really want to talk about because it was such a, you have a whole chapter on it, which is such a revelation, is the Maison Félix. And Félix, this is so fallen from recognition today, and you have brought it back. So will you talk about the Maison Félix and what you found interesting and intriguing about this particular house? Félix was spoken in the same breath as Worth, Paquin, Doucet in this period. The House of Félix had nearly overlapping patrons with the House of Worth and with the other major houses. So Empress Eugenie, Queen Margarita of Italy, the actresses Sarah Bernhard, Sophie Croizat, Lily Langtree, you name it. But Felix has fallen out of the historical record because we just don't have business documentation for it. Um, even the family doesn't have it. I've been in touch with them. And the garments survive in lesser quantities than for Worth or Doucet, for example. But we do have some, and the designs are just absolutely gorgeous. There's an extraordinary opera gown in the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising Museum in Los Angeles, and it's made of cream-colored silk. It's worn with opera gloves. It has this lower back protruding bustle that was the norm for the 1880s. And um, the dream scenario, FIDM, as they call the museum, or FIDM, they have a matching opera gown that was worn by the owner's daughter, who was in her late teens or early 20s. And I just love this vision of the mother-daughter <laughs> matching opera gown outfits. Um, there's also Felix garments at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the Western Reserve Historical Society in Cleveland, and museum collections in France. I just love this house, and I'm determined to track down all the Felix garments that exist. Oh, I hope you do. And just to mention, there is a beautiful color plate of that opera gown in your book. There is. Right. So now 
really interesting subject here. By no means were the greatest designers all men. In fact, there were a number of women. And one that you mentioned that I would love you to talk a little bit about what we know and what we don't know was the very curious Madame Rodrigue. What do we know about her? We know nearly nothing about her. We know that she worked for a company with her own name on it. And that Madame is very important because we only have the first initial N for the name. We know that the house was active from about 1875 to 1879. We know that the firm was working with theater performers. And we know that because the house was mentioned by fashion writer Violette in her book of 1885. And also in um, Violette, that's a pseudonym uh, for uh, her fashion columns in a magazine called Woman's World. But surviving garments are exceedingly rare. I show a blue-green silk dinner dress by this house in the book, and it's in the collection of the Kyoto Costume Institute in Japan, and I'm so thankful they granted permission to reproduce it. But boy, would I like to know more about her. Well, maybe there's just some hidden archives somewhere just waiting for you to discover it, Liz. I'm, so. I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm, I'm on the case. Now, I want to go back to this notion of this, this process, this interactive collaboration between the designer and the patron, because I think that's really interesting. Can you talk really about how that worked and what this exchange was like? How did patrons bring their ideas? What did the designers then do? How did this work? It was very much a personalized, customized process. So that's couture, the concept of couture. So Felix, Doucet, Worth, they would keep measurements on file for their best clients. Some of them had busts that they could fill out with designs that bodices that they thought would that their clients would like and keeping measurements on file always sounds a little um uh, makes i think some of us feel a little self-conscious um keep in mind that a lot of these clients women were going through life changes over the course of time that they were customers and so they were having children they were getting into middle age and on they would have to send changes in their measurements to the design houses but the fittings were very much up close and personal Jean-Philippe Worth who I mentioned was one of the sons of Charles Frederick Worth he wrote later um, in a memoir for the entire firm how particular the actress Sarah Bernhardt was and um, he said that she often doubles, this is a quote, often doubles the cost of a dress by tearing it into shreds when she's in a fit of anger. So think about how up close and personal you'd have oh, to dear. be <laughs> to get a sense of Sarah Bernhardt's personality in a fitting room. Um, but I want to also add that not only were the women having personal relationships with the owners of the home of these houses, but also with the seamstresses and the salespeople. So we have letters from society women in Chicago. Chicago, who were sharing names of their favorite salespeople at Doucet and Worth. And as a researcher, this is just so, so, so precious. These names of the saleswomen. I mean, where else will you get that? You just you just don't. They've fallen out of the record. So, Liz, can you take us inside one of the couture houses and describe what this experience would have been like? Maybe Felix, uh, what would it have been like to shop there? Well, Felix is a great example. Um, so the house was located at 15 Rue de Faubourg Saint Honoré. It was spread out over several floors. I believe it was four floors. Um, house of Worth might, uh, was nearby and had even one or two more floors. But it's so extraordinary. We have a newspaper report with black and white photographs from 1894 showing us the interior of this house. These are so rare and so valuable. The salon was set up to represent and to resemble a salon in an upper class home. So these interiors, they're very warm. They're green. There's there's mirrors. There are green ferns. There's warm carpeting, plenty of seating. There's sofas. This particular house, Felix, they also commissioned women artists to paint theatrical portraits of actresses who were clients. So women coming into this space would see and emulate other 
celebrity clients and perhaps get a sense of what they wanted to order. There were also live models that would circulate through these rooms. And in the case of Felix, the owner, um, Emile Poussineau, his wife, Madame Poussineau, would wear the gowns and circulate as a live model throughout these rooms. And I like to point out that this was very much a women's space. There likely would have been a waiting room for the husbands, but most likely the husbands stayed at home. Women were out on their own and with friends doing this shopping work. Which I think also gave a sense of empowerment and strength, right? Because women in Europe, American women in Europe, in Paris, this was a moment where they were free. They were free to make decisions and really channel a great deal of power. Am I correct about that? There's really a sense of agency for these women. That comes through very clearly. Now, you have talked about a really fascinating special archive of documents from the Gilded Age socialite, um, May Goulet. Can you talk about that? First of all, who she was and what her records actually show us. This is extraordinary. There's a set of shopping invoices that remains for the Goulet family. They were stored and forgotten in a bureau, a piece of furniture that was later found and acquired by Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island. They've now been digitized, thank goodness. Um, But the invoices record purchases and services that were rendered in France and England, mostly in the 1890s. Now, the parents were Ogden and Mary Rita Wilson Golet. They shopped at Felix for women's couture and accessories. They shopped at Franck for lingerie and nightclothes. They bought corsets at Lyotie. They bought more couture at Morin Bolossier. And they bought hats at Vero. They also patronized a tailor who worked on adult and children's clothes. And they brought their traveling trunks to a place called Bijot for repairs. So... Their daughter, whose name was also Mary, but she went by May, she later married the Duke of Roxburgh in 1903. And it was one of the most fashionable international marriages of the day. The bride's worth was estimated to be $20 million at that time. So can you imagine? Oh, good. Well, there's (laughs) some money for shopping. Yeah, sure. So her enormous trousseau from Paris was reported in newspapers, um, statewide, across international borders. And her multiple trunks worth of, you know, her trousseau, which would be her wedding gown and um, her traveling gown, her going away gown, her, you know, what you would wear on your honeymoon. People were awaiting news. And there's this wonderful photograph, which I reproduce at the end of the book, that shows the massive amounts of trucks that came from Paris to the New York Customs uh, with all of the clothing that she bought. I I love that photograph. I think it's amazing. And with that, Liz and I are going to take a short break, uh, but we'll be back to talk about the cost of having your gowns designed in Paris. And yes, my friends, it's more than you think. If you're on a GLP-1, you're probably loving the results. But how do you feel? All of those side effects can take a toll. So now what? Get to GNC. We'll help with solutions to address those side effects and keep you going on your journey. GNC. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. (laughs) 
And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm joined today by Dr. Elizabeth Block, the author of Dressing Up, The Women Who Influenced French Fashion. Okay, Liz, we have talked about so many aspects so far, and we have a few more to talk about, but I'm sure listeners at this point are really wondering just how much one of these dresses that we're talking about would have cost. Can you offer some kind of idea here? A couture dress in the late 1880s could cost $1,600. That's the equivalent of nearly $47,000 today for one dress. And that's just for the dress. And we're going to get into some of these extra costs coming up. Now, what would have been typical for a woman to... How many dresses would have been typical for a woman to order for a season? Possibly 10. Think about May Golette with all those trunks coming into the port of New York. I can only imagine how many she had in there. So we are talking about a significant investment, correct? This is an investment in fashion. So the actual cost of the dress was one thing. But then, and I find this really interesting, but then you had the shipping costs and then the tariffs that were added on top of this. So that that alone could be thousands and thousands of dollars in today's money. And you devote actually a whole really fascinating chapter to this. So can you talk about the issue of the tariffs and how they came in and what their implication was? And of course... There were some women that tried to get around them, correct? So what was the story of the tariffs? The tariffs chapter was one of the surprise hits of the book. I thought, oh, I'm going to alienate some people here, but not at all because it gets so fascinating. And the chapter, this topic is really about the investment in fashion, as you say. The U.S. government at the time took protectionist efforts to discourage the purchase of foreign goods and to encourage instead domestic production. So there were two tariffs in particular that affected the influx of French fashion. And these are named after senators. One is the tariff of 1890, called the McKinley tariff. The other is of 1897, which is called the Dingley tariff. And to me, it was so fascinating to see the reactions of the elite customers, but also from the other side, how the business owners in France reacted to these restrictions. So yes, some customers tried to get around the tariffs by using extreme methods, like smuggling. There's a great story in a New York newspaper of April 1893. It's about how Cornelia Martin, now some people might be familiar with that name, she was the only daughter of Bradley and Cornelia Sherman Martin of the great 1897 Bradley Martin Ball. I did a whole show on I it know, just a few weeks ago. Yes, well. yes, yes. Um, so Cornelia had her French wedding gown stopped at the New York Custom House. She and her parents were returning from a trip to Europe where they acquired her trousseau for the upcoming wedding that she was going to have to a British earl. When they got to customs, they were questioned by an official about the wedding gown that was in one of the trunks. And her father claimed that the gown was old. It was previously worn. It was not new and it could not be taxed. Did they get through? They made it through. I mean, money is power, right? And then on the flip side, as for the business owners in Paris of the fashion houses, they were forced to reduce their prices in some cases to take into account these tariffs and also to consider licensing their patterns to U.S. department stores. Now, there is a story that you tell that I just adore because it involves our grand dame of the Gilded Age, Caroline Astor, and apparently... She didn't want to pay tariffs on her gowns either, but that didn't end so well. Can you talk about that? Caroline Astor refused to pay tariffs on several gowns, including Felix ones, which is how I found the newspaper reports to begin with. It was a few hundred dollars per dress. I mean, she could have afforded it. She just would not pay. And those dresses were auctioned by customs and theatrical houses bought them. An actress bought them. Didn't some end up in Bloomingdale's, if I'm correct? Two of them ended up in Bloomingdale Brothers. (laughs) I just love that story. It's like, well, okay. Now, I want to go back to one of the 
most fascinating parts of this too, which is the role of perfume and the role of scent. Because when we were talking about the the, the coiffeurs and the, the milliners, the perfume makers were very much part of this. So can you talk about the role of scent in fashion? As I said earlier, I noticed in these fashion plates that the perfumers were credited along with the designers, the hairstylists, and the corset makers. And this really struck me. You cannot smell perfume on a page in a fashion plate. So why were they being credited? Perfume's ephemeral. You can't see it. You have to imagine it. And this phenomenon spoke to me about how important this aspect was of the fashion network of this industry. So periodicals describe how there were perfumed silk sachets. They were about two inches by two inches, and they were filled with flower clippings. So you could pick your favorite scent. So say clippings of violet or of iris leaves sewn into a silk sachet, and then that would be sewn into the waistband of your dress. So your dress would have your signature scent in it. In addition, some of the houses and the shippers would put your signature scent or an extra sachet into a box with your dress in it. So if you were getting your box shipped to you in the United States, when you opened the dress box, it would have your scent emitting from it. Now, many upper class women chose a signature scent. And I thought listeners might be interested to hear some specific ones. So Caroline Astor liked wild lavender and garden roses mixed. That's a quote. Alice Claypool Gwyn Vanderbilt, she's the one who wore the famous electric light dress to the Vanderbilt Ball in 1883. She preferred Verbena and First Lady Frances Cleveland. She preferred Parma Violet. I think this is a marketing opportunity to recreate those scents, don't you, Let's Liz? Do it. I think we should get on this. Let's now, do it. Now, I, I love the story of the perfume. Now, I want to move on to the hairdressers, uh, the the coiffeurs, and also the the milliners, because these were enormously important parts of the of the network too. Can you talk a little bit about hairdressing and hairstyle? And dare I say, this is perhaps a future project of yours? This will be a tease for my upcoming book, which is on the hairdressing industry. The hairdressers in France, the coiffeurs, were central to the fashion system, not a marginal service. Um, And I will argue for this to the end of my days. Um, I look at the partnerships and the rivalries between the hairdressers and the designers. The two professions, along with those of the milliners and the perfumers, were mutually dependent, and to an extent, they were inbred. So several couturiers began business as milliners, and then they expanded from hats to gowns when their clients asked them to. That was after their names were established in the fashion world. So the Maison Félix started with hairdressing. The founder was a coiffeur to Empress Eugenie. Similarly, the coiffeur Guillaume-Louis Lenteric, who I feature in Dressing Up, became known as a perfumer, and his brand continued into the 1940s with international distribution. So this mutual reliance between the practitioners, um, and as I say, there were rivalries. Um, I love this quote. The House of Worth, later in this memoir by Jean-Philippe Worth, he said, if the milliners had had their way, they would have done away with hair. Now, there's an image that you have shown, um, I believe it was from a newspaper, showing women having their hair washed in the American style, which is really going to be a revelation to listeners. Can you talk about what that meant and what was really going on here? The American style of washing your hair was to shampoo it with soap and water. The French style was more of a dry shampoo, which was essentially combing through, you know, powders, powdered soap through your hair without the water. And a lot of this goes into the really fascinating history of plumbing. <laughs> well, you have to come back when you do your your book on hair and we'll talk about all of that. Now, one question that comes up often, particularly if one is spending $50,000 in today's money on a dress, the question comes up, well, could you wear it again? 
women rewore those dresses and they wore them over the course of several years. When they were finally finished with rewearing a dress, they might sell it to a secondhand purveyor. You know, the thrift stores that we're all so familiar with today, that all started, you know, in previous centuries. Um, They might also donate them to middle class women or to their housemaids. So this led to a trickle down effect of disseminating styles over the course of years. Again, these women were trendsetters and they were dictating the styles just as much as the couturiers were. Now, what about fakes and copies? I'm so curious about this. Were there ripoffs that were coming into the American market based on these these French designs? If you couldn't spend $50,000 on a dress, what happened? Oh, fakes were happening. Um, all of this is interwoven with the theft and smuggling that we mentioned earlier. And this all relates to the impact of tariffs, too. The impact of the tariffs and these extra taxes, these extra costs, contributed to the widespread availability of counterfeit copies of original patterns. In 1868, Charles Frederick Worth and others founded the Chambre Syndicale. And this was sort of a conglomerate, a a type of union, if you will, of designers who came together to advocate against illegal copying. But piracy in fashion designs in France was very, very difficult to prosecute. And it was not until 1902 that there was a law that could help to secure the artistic aspect of a couture design. Now, in the United States, copyright laws often interpreted clothing as a utilitarian item, not as art and did not provide protection at all. So in the late 1880s, we start to see fake labels appearing in garments. And the couturiers had to react. So to preserve its business, Worth began selling models that could be legally copied by department and dry goods stores. And that then allowed the local makers to avoid um, duties. Now, a really fascinating element of your book that I just never thought about before was the notion of the sculptural effect of a dress, meaning that it was very much a 3D experience. It was meant to be looked at in various ways and angles. But also, when you talk about the interior design of some of the great mansions and how fashion was taken into consideration there and how a dress or a gown would look in that environment. So can you talk about this architectural, sculptural idea of fashion? The dresses were so sculptural. They were so three-dimensional. And in Dressing Up, I have a chapter called Gowns and Mansions that discusses the relationship between architecture and fashion. The chapter argues that women wearing costly, elaborate gowns and these masquerade costumes were effectively activating the newly built mansions by filling them with the fabrics and the cachet of Parisian couture. So... I look at the actual wearing of the clothing and the work that the gowns were doing in displaying status and wealth in these buildings. So in these enormous mansions. Today, I was walking by the Ukrainian Institute on East 79th Street. It's a preserved mansion from the Gilded Age. It's so vast. It's so it's such a monument, a statement. These Buildings, the vast square footage, the tall ceilings, the expertly curved furniture. Um, The best example I can give is the Vanderbilt Ball of 1883, which listeners will be familiar with. The very famous housewarming that was um, given by William Kissam Vanderbilt and Alva Vanderbilt at 665th Avenue. That's at 52nd Street for the New Yorkers. Alva was very involved in decorating this house. The dining hall had ceilings of oak, and the windows were created with pieces of medieval stained glass. There were other rooms appointed with 17th century tapestries. This very fancy ball was held on a Monday night with hundreds of guests, and they spent a rumored $250,000 in total, which is close to $7 million today. So it's interesting, the interior architecture combined with the gowns and the gowns combined with the interior architecture to create the overall effect. They both sort of fed on each other. Is that that's the correct understanding? That's of that. right. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a choreography for sure. 
Now, one of my favorite questions I'm so anxious to ask you is that if you, Liz, could have any of the 19th century French designers in Paris create a dress for you, which one would you choose? And most importantly, what would the dress look like? I choose Madame Rodriguez, whom we know so little about. Um, We know so little about her, but she had an eye for color and pattern combinations And I am just struck by this red and blue gown from the 1870s, the one in the Kyoto Costume Institute, with the red roses applied on top of it. I would ask her to create for me a red and blue gown. And during the fitting, I would ask her, how's business? And I would ask her, which clients are driving you the most crazy these days? And assuming that she would tell it to you straight, what do you think she'd say? (laughs) I think there would be a few actresses and a few household names. Oh, I'm sure I can't wait to hear that conversation. Now, I do want to ask you before we leave one question. You and I were chatting a little bit before we started the show about some contemporary trends in fashion. So one of my questions for you to leave with listeners is, do you think there are any influences that we see in fashion today that actually came from the Gilded Age or came from the Belle Epoque or even the 19th century? There's a direct line that I see all these award shows that happen. And of course, the Met Ball, the great Met Ball, the first Monday in May every year. I see the influence of bold color combinations. And I also see the influence of, shall we say, statement sleeves. So the big puffy sleeves of the 1890s. I mean, we're seeing that on a daily basis in New York and at and at these award shows. And then sometimes those puffy sleeves go down to the middle of the arm and, and that's an earlier influence from the earlier 19th century. So it, it all comes back again. What is old is new again, right? <laughs> that's right. Oh gosh, Liz, thank you so much for joining me today. There is so much more we could talk about. I can't wait to have you back on the show. Will you come back? Oh, you got it. Count, <laughs> count me in. Thank you for talking about this world of fashion and really pulling back the veil on so many elements and aspects of it that I think will be new to listeners. We're certainly new to me in, in reading your book. Thank you very much for coming on The Gilded Gentleman. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. And to my listeners, I encourage you to find Liz's beautiful book, Dressing Up, The Women Who Influenced French Fashion and Its Gorgeous Color Photography Wherever Books Are Sold. And to my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited by Kieran Gannon. If you love Paris and the Belle Epoque, don't miss the Gilded Gentleman's episode number 35, Edith Wharton's Paris. I invite you to join the Gilded Gentleman as a patron of the show on patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support helps me in a very real way to manage the costs of writing, production, and continuing to create the show. I couldn't do it without you. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? <laughs>